0: Tonight's author is M. Allen Cunningham. He's the author of the novels The Green Age of Asher Rith- Witherow, Lost Son, and Partisans, as well as the short story collection Date of Disappearance, an essay collection entitled The Honorable Obscurity Handbook, and an illustrated work of cultural criticism entitled The Flickering Page. His work has been shortlisted for the Indie Next Book of the Year Award, a finalist for the Flann O'Brien Award a semi-finalist for the American Short Fiction Prize, and has appeared in many national and regional literary outlets, including The Canyon Review, Glimmer Train, Tin House, Alaska Quarterly Review, Catamaran, Boulevard, and Epoch. The recipient of multiple fellowships, as well as residencies at Yaddo, Cunningham is a contributing editor for the literary journal Moss. He teaches creative writing in Portland, Oregon, and elsewhere. So without further
1: ado. Hello. Thank you all for being here. This is very nice to see you all. Um, and thank you, Howells. Um, it's always, I was just telling my friend Jack at the back of the room, it's always a great honor to speak um, the words of my books into these rooms every couple years. So So, um, tonight, instead of just uh, reading from this novel, um, which is a book 11 years in the making, I thought I'd also share the story of how the book um, and these characters in it uh, first arrived in my imagination, Um, share some anecdotes from my research and so on. So I'm going to read a short section and talk a bit, read another small section and so on. We'll go on like that. Um, I've got about four brief sections picked out, which I hope will give you a sense of the scope of the book. Um, so I think this is kind of like my DVD commentary, so <laughs> hopefully uh, you like commentaries as much as I do. Um, and then uh, after that, I'd be happy to answer questions or just chat a bit. Um, So, I'm going to start by reading a bit from the very beginning of Perpetua's Kin. Uh, This novel is the story of five generations in one American family, the Lorne family, and it takes place across um, most of North America over more than a hundred years. It's structured non-linearly, so it kind of goes back and forth in time. Um, It's kind of like an unconventional mystery story in some ways. It's a partly epistolary novel, coming-of-age tale, love story. But more largely speaking, it's a book about um, American restlessness, uh, manifest destiny, family secrets, how we communicate, the American relationship to technology, to war, and to memory. It's also a retelling of Shakespeare's Hamlet. I thought I'd throw that in for good measure. Um, And I'm hoping Hamlet fans will recognize that when they read the book. Um, So this first section I'm going to read starts uh, in the 1820s with an immigration. And it concerns a man named Thornton Lorne, who is uh, the grandfather of the novel's main character, Benjamin Lorne. Uh, And it's followed by a short section about Benjamin himself. And in writing this early part of the novel, I always thought of it as kind of like a, a slow zoom in from sort of this very wide shot into an increasingly detailed, personal uh, one. Because I think for many of us, if we were fortunate enough to know a little bit about our genealogies or our uh, ancestral background, all those events in that history that led up to our own lives can kind of, when we're thinking about it, can kind of feel like that, it feel like a zoom in toward our own particular moment in time, our own personal story. So here we go, this is called the Lorne's of Perpetua. Perpetua was Benjamin's birthplace, as it was his father's. Benjamin's grandfather, Thornton Hanson Lorne, first brought the family name there around 1842. The town was in its infancy then. Thornton's parents were born and bred in the damp northern climes of Germany, both the offspring of modestly landed farmers, and it was there they sired Thornton. He was a child just learning to walk when, in 1822, they secured passage to America. Coming late to the harbor at Kiel, the Laurens found their ship, the Brook, embarked. But within a day or two, a different vessel, the Schattenwild, brought them down off the roiling Baltic Sea into a chasmed Atlantic. The steerage stank, the decks squirmed, there had been quarrels in the crowd, oaths and tussles, and many had taken sick. The waves were green at morning, blue at midday, red at dusk. They'd heard there were things to die of in America, beasts, Indians, the like. Their families wishing they'd stay at home had striven to give them fears, though not doubting the dangers Lorne and wife supposed America would offer things of promise as numerous unlearned fears made them emigrants. So the 14-month Thornton Hanson Lorne took his first steps over the deck of the Schattenbilde as she hissed through phosphorous night. By time of landing at New York, the boy had learned to travel upright, unhelped, though the ship's floating lent him a peculiar idea of balance. Between his parents, he lurched from the rancid dockyards into the hemorrhaging avenues of Manhattan. Like many his age, he would keep a swaying gait his whole life. Alighting in America, the Lorns could hardly yet suppose it, but they were to grow old there. They went down to Pennsylvania, where they lived and farmed and let years abrade youth. The toddling blond-haired Thornton, like his siblings after him, grew up, and at twenty he moved west to stake claim in the rolling hill country of southern Iowa. There he set up house in the seedling Moravian village of Perpetua, and harrowed farmland all his own, harnessed to a moldboard plow that was harnessed to a draft horse, walking the earth with nautical stride. He walked again behind the harrow and took joy to see the dark clods of earth, his discs bladed soft. At an early harvest dance in the Perpetua Grange, Thornton held a girl's hand through the courtesy turn, the curlicue. She'd recently come with her family from Vermont. The bones of her fingers were small and light as cinnamon sticks. Thornton felt his boots stumping at the boards. Straining for gingerness, he shifted to his toes. During the sachet, he caught whiff of her, and his mind bloomed with thoughts of balsam or birch or delicately-leaved northern trees. He called at the girl's home soon after. Her people were called Lighty. She was Frances. She played the English flute. In the parlor they sat, he and Frances and Mr. and Mrs. Lighty. He held his hat on his knees. She asked had he ever heard the tune of Glen Logie, then pursed her cheeks and blew, and her fingers were quick at the stops. In the melody's Celtic windings, half sprightly, half melancholic, he watched her lips at the mouthpiece and fell in love with her embouchure. Thornton and Francis courted three months and married. New Laurens were soon begotten and grew faster than their parents could reckon. Thornton's plowshare dulled, the discs of his harrow dulled. With strops and stones he honed them. The strops thinned and snapped, and the stones softened beyond usefulness. Other strops and stones followed. Thornton's aging draft horse began to stumble. An aging farmer in his furrows he shambled after. His farm had yielded scores of crop in its time, corn and potatoes and oats fruit in smaller portions. It was a croft farm, little else. One morning, Thornton awoke to a quarter century gone. The summery sprigs on his neck had whitened. Their nap thickened. Impassively, his mirror showed him so. Surely he'd noticed before, but it felt the first time. At 43, Frances took to deathbed. For weeks, her cough had clattered in the house. She oughtn't have cleared the clothesline in that wet weather, scolded Thornton. Then she left him to the widower's immemorial grief. Widower, he said to himself, and repeated it every day for weeks. In those days, 43 did not seem too young to die. It was no injustice. Still, he stood betrayed by her absence. Time cheated him some way. Although taking account, he found every year in place, no fewer than any man his age. Indeed, he'd had twenty-five with Frances. Her death had defied preference, but didn't any death. So Thornton, grief-stricken, concluded he owed the world and the rules of things no bitterness. History is brisk. You are baffled to begin a story only someone else may close. These were the beginnings of Benjamin Lawrence. Benjamin. Benjamin's earliest memory shows him his mother at the dining room window with water pitcher in hand, counting out seconds after a blast of lightning. Small at table, his supper plate forgotten before him, he watches her, watching on his behalf. He's learned to pretend at numbers, seeing elders tick their fingers. So he lifts hands above his plate and starts. He doesn't know the order, but pretending is comfort. Then comes noise, like the ceiling ripping away. His water glass shakes. Thunder, says Mama. Not to worry, can't hurt you. Lightning, though, is different. We'll keep counting Mama and me till it's gone. His first worded thoughts. One needn't know numbers to remember, but words, words are necessary. So, Uh, I said the book was 11 years in the making. It it can be a mysterious process, I think, the way a novel takes shape over time. So I thought I'd talk a bit about that. Um, uh, 11 years takes us back to 2007, um, which itself sounds like a really long time, I think. Um, But uh, in fact, the whole project, I realized recently goes much further back than that more like twenty years to my earliest days in college um, and to the persistent nagging of my maternal grandmother Um, because around that time my grandma first told me about some old family letters she had in her possession her grandfather had written these letters as a young man and she thought I'd be interested in reading them I was not and uh... the main reason I was not uh, was because I I didn't do the math. It didn't compute for me uh, at first that when my grandmother, a woman in her 70s, said, my grandfather, she was talking about my own great-great-grandfather, a man who would have been born around the middle of the 19th century. But Grandma brought up these letters on many different occasions, and uh, in one of the letters she said her grandfather had kind of come to his wits' end and had written, "Um, I think I just might go and eat rough on rats. And Grandma always laughed at this, um, and she'd say, rough on rats, do you know what that is? And the answer was rat poison. Um, but still, this did not interest me at all. Um, and I, it was not nearly as funny to me as she seemed to think it was. Um, and in fact, simply for having to hear this anecdote over and over, I kind of felt like I could relate to the old guy's sentiment. Um, LAUGHTER so I think Grandma finally stopped bringing up the letters, but suddenly, one day, uh, long after I'd forgotten they existed again, the letters came into my possession. And they came in a shoebox, and uh, this was about 15 years ago. And I, I remember very keenly the sensation of first opening that box, um, the antique smell of the paper inside and the sense of years upon years upon years just rising up and hitting me in the face. Um, My amazement that these brittle documents had survived in various closets over the years. Um, But more than all of that, this feeling, which I can only describe as a feeling of revelation, um, the feeling that a story had been placed right into my hands The box was stuffed from end to end with more than a hundred small yellowing envelopes, each containing a letter written with a nib and ink. Um, And I brought a little color copy of one of them. They're just beautiful old letters. This one was written at a hotel in Walla Walla in the 1880s. Um, And many of these letters were five, six pages long. So did I know all at once that I was going to write a book, I try to think back to that, and I I think I did. I think it was an immediate sensation. The letters, once I looked through them, I realized they constituted the full correspondence, courtship correspondence, between my great-great-grandfather and great-great-grandmother in the 1880s. And so I sat down to read them, and from the very first, I was moved beyond all expectation. My great-great-grandfather, Garrett, and uh, great-great-grandmother, Mary, These ancestors, previously unknown to me, uh, were both terrifically alive on paper. Two vibrant voices, witty, unassuming, shy, befuddled, and sometimes tortured. And each letter, in its own way, put kind of a frame around uh, some fleeting, seemingly inconsequential moment from a very remote time, and just reanimated it profoundly. Um, and from their simple lives in these tiny townships in the 19th century in Iowa, these ancestors, um, the only way I can describe it is that they surged up into my, um, into my life, into my contemporary life, which was then in suburban California. And I'd say, too, they surged into my heart and into my imagination. I soon loved them very much. Um, I loved Garrett's letters for their humble charm, They had this plangent insecurity about them, and uh, they showed a lot of this sort of troubled soul, his desire to always be and do better, to rise to being worthy of this young woman who had so captured his attention. He'd often tie himself into knots when he was writing, like when he writes in one letter to Mary, I want to see you awful bad, or not that, for I want to see you always good, I don't know how to express it, so I will simply say, I want to see you. And I I loved Mary's letters in response for their clarity and their level-headedness. And she had this indulgent but not exactly infinitely patient way of handling his foibles. So much circumspection and self-awareness. She writes, I know you think I am not doing right, and I know I am not. This is in response to him pressuring her to hurry up their their, um, engagement but I don't see but what you will have to just stand it. Why, it has been only about three years since we first knew each other, and what is that compared to a lifetime? I love you even more than I did when I gave you my promise, but I think I am a good deal older than I was then, and think more about what my life is to be. We shape our own destinies, you know. You, I think, have passed this wavering period, and now you will have to wait until I catch up with you in thought. Just have patience." So they were obviously a very good match, And what moved me most of all about these letters was how passages like this one revealed this profound urge on both their parts toward connection, toward a a bond that was forged solely through expression, through this urge toward expression. And we're talking about written expression. They were both writers, without a doubt. And a little while later from a family member in Kansas, I inherited Garrett's abortive memoir, Another document I didn't know existed. These were handwritten scraps and carefully typewritten pages that he'd labored on in the mid-1940s. He was in his 80s then. Mary had recently passed away. He'd left Iowa for good to live with his daughter in San Francisco. And the first draft of his memoir begins with this passage: After a lot of time, I thought. After a lot of thought, I have concluded to try and write what I am thinking about all the time, and that is my life. As I have lived it, I am not very sure I will be proud of it as a whole. My life, I suppose, has been no different than thousands of others, just made up of little things and living day by day. Looking back, I wonder if I can write about it and emphasize the things that should be, and rather gloss over the things that I wish was not in my life, but have concluded to tell it as it was, as no one but myself will ever get to read it, and if they could, who would? Again, that urge toward expression. And I began to wonder, was this the origin of that same urge that I had always felt in my own blood and bones, had felt as long as I could remember? The wish to write seemingly came out of nowhere. Had I sort of unknowingly inherited that? Opening that box of letters was like opening a tunnel that led me down into the rich strata of story beneath my family. But more than that, into the strata of the story of this nation past and present. I learned that my great-great-great-grandfather, Garrett's father, had fought in the Civil War as a young man and had returned home having lost a leg. I learned that Garrett had gone to work for the Telegraph and had left home in his early 20s to travel the West, working the wires, came as far as Walla Walla and Portland. So in the novel, my character, young Benjamin Lorne, growing up in Perpetua, Iowa, becomes enthralled by the Telegraph wires. He learns telegraphy early on. He's grown up under a bitter, tyrannical father, a man who lost a leg in the Civil War and seems to harbor some dark secret. But Benjamin finds in the wires a promise of escape from the past that haunts his family, and escape from time itself, a promise of pure connection, of spiritual deliverance and in our Silicon Valley days. I don't think that's such a strange or unfamiliar (laughs) belief. I've said on a few occasions already that while writing this book, I thought I was writing about the internet, which seems like a strange comment to make about a book that starts in the 1820s and goes up to 1944. But it's true. Inasmuch as Perpetuous Kin is a novel about patterns of communication and the telegraph and the American religion of technology, it is a novel about the internet. Inasmuch as it's about the Civil War and World War II, it's a novel about war in general. Inasmuch as it's about American restlessness and manifest destiny, it's a novel about the persistent fallacies and surrealism of the West. Inasmuch as it's about a family, it's about a nation. Um, so as I've mentioned, Perpetuous Kin includes uh, several epistolary sections. And some of the language and phrasing in these parts uh, is based on the real letters. Um, and it's these sections that, uh, w- where a number, it's in these sections where a number of the novel's main questions are, are asked, are raised. So if Benjamin is Hamlet, I started thinking of these as his soliloquies. So I'd like to read two from Benjamin's. Uh, correspondence, uh, written during his travels, addressed to Alma Robley, who's a young woman back in Iowa, whom he's met in person only twice. Uh, The first is dated July 28, 1887, Hannibal and St. Joseph Railroad Company, Salvage, Missouri. Friend Alma, if it happens that you did reply to my last letter, you could not know to address me in Missouri of all places. I must be a fool for I left Appanus Co. intending travel west, but by some blunder consented to go south instead. As they needed a man at this office, and as I am the more easily hoodwinked than others, I am down here at Salvage. My position here is called expensing clerk, for I sell tickets, send messages, expense bills. I am really an ordinary operator besides. The Hannibal and St. Joe, you may notice, is something less than my ideal employer, but this was to be just a meantime arrangement. I do not yet know exactly how long they shall need me. It is day by day, but that it is not permanent is consoling. The managers know I am bound west. I won't let them forget it, in fact, for I ache to go. To illustrate what an awful heathendom I am in, I will give you the happenings of one night. A gentleman by the name J.S. Shanks was in town. Much in salvage spirit, Mr. Shanks washed a late evening away in drink, and then, starting home along the R.R., was run down by the mail express. This man left his family over to Kansas City some days before and never telling them where he was bound, and until they read news of his sudden death, they'd had no clue to his whereabouts. The papers say he was a postal agent of decent character whose conduct had lately taken a turn for the worse. Good Lord, it troubles me to hear of such men. Salvage seems to draw them. One must ask of oneself, were I, Mr. Shanks, would I have the sight to see how lost I'd got? Or does a soul stray blind over some toe line and never notice? Does it not haunt you to think of it, Alma, what senseless wanderings can overtake us? Or how small an accident can kill a body? Is there not some hand that authors us? Do you not sometimes feel it is so? And Mr. Shanks's ignominious end was but one event. Same evening, an elder of the Christian church shot twice at his daughter, crippling the girl for life. Same evening. Two men at drinking got up a rumpus that spilled from a saloon into one of the main streets here in town. It was all fisticuffs till one was knocked thoughtless. But the winner of this brawl, wanting better bloodshed, ran back inside to fetch an iron poker, and none in the crowd made to stop him as he laid in with it on the man. That man is not expected to live. Same evening had three different fires in town. If I had not written this letter, I would hardly believe its reports. This is my dwelling place at the start of my journey. Does it hang an ill star above my going away, you think? I try to believe not, but that I blundered coming here is certain. Can the wild west be wilder than this? I do wonder at times now why I am going, why I left, I mean. But then I remember Perpetua and my life there and all is clear again. I'm afraid this shapes up to be another letter with disagreeable writ large all over it and what temerity from one whose correspondence you may have declined to welcome by now in your last letter, I mean, which I have not received. I might as well say it. One wants to speak rightly to a soul like you. Some moments I think this must be one reason I saw fit to leave in order to talk to you in letters, as I likely wouldn't in person. Has the authoring hand made this so? Maybe so, in which case I cannot judge the hand ill, as I've been tempted to. I do want to be clear and well in my letters, so as to provide you reason to await instead of dread them. Would that this imperfect science of word, comma, and period had something pure and singing in it, like the electrical energy of the telegraph wires. I think if the wire signal were itself the message, not just the means, or if we mortals needed nothing but currents to link up each to each and be understood, we would likely become more perfect creatures and this world a kinder place after the natural murderers had all murdered each other, that is. I will tell you, though you'll think me a fool, that this is my second try at this letter today. Quitting work for the evening, I went round to the rear of the depot house to sit upon a freight truck and pencil my thoughts to you. My hotel, I've discovered, is much too noisy and disorders my brain. I do not sleep at all here despite exhaustion, but that is a different affair. A wind had come up. It was roaring along the station platform. Just as I finished the page, my paper was snatched away. It flew so quick I didn't bother to scramble after it. I just watched it flap west along the tracks, and I suppose it is to St. Joe by now, if somebody in a passing train didn't reach out a window and catch it. Why do I tell you this, besides to make you smile at my expense? Because, as I watched the letter fly, I began to think it was best. Maybe meant to be, if you see my meaning. Oh, what can anybody do, whether writing a letter or trying to speak to another, to make oneself understood? Some wind takes our words, Alma, and flings them. We cannot say how they go, or how unscathed our fragile thoughts will be once heard or read. I suppose it must happen that words, messages, letters bring one soul closer to another, and not infrequently either. But to me, it's a mystery." And then a little later he writes, November 19th, 1887, from Vernal, California. Dear friend, my destiny, such as it is, has led me to California. As you are not likely to have predicted this turn, I think it good to tell you my whereabouts and the poor circumstances that led me here. I have been sick again. Whatever my benefits in health when last I wrote you, they were appallingly brief. I reached Portland underwater, or so it felt for there was little light in that city, the sky fully closed up in clouds, and the ground boggy and slick, and rain beating down without mercy. It was no place to go, though it took so long to get there, and though having come through wild country, a body wished keener keenly for a finer, friendlier destination. A city is wild in its own way, and Portland is a city in every respect, with shipyards, stone storefronts, and hotels. There is even a Chinese quarter that swarms with those folk. Down in the close streets fronting its river, the traveller finds much noise, but little rest. It was there I lodged, and there I wondered, tossing in my blankets, at the strangeness of so grey and miserable a city sprung up at the limits of the earth. Whatever was it led me through the sandy wastes to such a place. My health did not falter right off, but after two days spent in the weather, there wasn't much to spare body and spirit sinking. My third morning in Portland, I woke early suffering a new attack, worse than any before. A doctor looked me over at my hotel and brought me to understand how far gone I'd become. I had no idea. He asked where I came from, and hearing Iowa replied, Oh, an Easterner. You people are awful hardy or awful foolhardy, I can never tell which. Sternly, he told me to go away to a drier place before I worsened past help. I cannot express how blue this made me. I felt no special fondness for Portland, but where to go. I could not turn back for Pendleton. The doctor then told me of this place called Vernal, which lies in the foothills of the California Sierra Range. The weather, while cold this time of year, is dry and often clear like East Oregon. And as Vernal sits in a valley below the snow, there is little danger of freezing. I arrived here day before last, seeing no choice but to make the journey though I can't say my health profited along the way. Rather, I would tell you the truth. I wonder if I had better give up hope of improving. Maybe these words will surprise you and cause you pains to read, but I wonder, should we forfeit these letters? Do I not treat you dishonestly, making myself known to you only on paper? If instead I were before you in person, I could not disguise my true spirit from your clear sense and sight. It is a diseased spirit, Alma. What I feel always is hunger, and it is hunger not of belly, but of breast. My heart, near starved at home, now sups on sandy, rainy, dusty, dry air, and is no better fed. My grandfather's people had a word for sickness like this. Wanderlust, they called it. Everywhere here you see its sufferers, all these placeless kind. In churchyards, the young stones stand alone, without relations cut off by how many miles from their begetters down the generations. For me, these stones mark lives and deaths lonelier than any I'd imagined. Is such a stone my destiny? It seems to me the more I study my fellow Westerners that we are most of us but doing paces in a wild sanatorium. We are not all sick in body, though I'd wager better than half are sick in spirit. That is, we haven't arrived here so much as fled someplace else. (coughs) Somewhere back along the way, we left our point of birth, our heritage, hateful, shameful, or just unsatisfactory to our ambition. To live without a history looked desirable to the lot of us. But here's the conundrum. Probably the farther you get from your history, the more this sickness festers, the more gnawing your hunger. You want to shake history right off your shoulder and brook no ghost or shadow. And yet man needs community, after all. And what is community? but a kind of history. Do I write at all sensibly? (laughs) Thank you very much. So about 10 years ago, I found myself on a pilgrimage to this tiny town in Iowa where my family had lived for some 120 years. And the town was, much as you'd expect, it was a sort of somnolent place, had kind of a forgotten feeling population of 400 today, surrounded by fields of corn and soybeans. But one day during a muggy rain shower, I stood in the old cemetery north of the square with my third great-grandfather's headstone before me engraved with the words 36th Iowa Volunteer Infantry Company C. And I was again overcome with a surprising wave of emotion. I whipped the cap from my head even. I might have saluted if I would known how a person salutes. I poked all around the little town. I visited the local one-room library in search of genealogical records, military records, anything. And one question key to my book in the making was, how exactly had my great-great-great-grandfather lost his leg? I knocked on the mayor's door even at lunchtime, which is sort of bold. (laughs) Uh, And I barged into the Grace Methodist Church on a Sunday during a crafting hour and met a church member who put me on the phone with an 85-year-old local historian, a lady who said, Sharon says you're a very nice young man, and if you're a grandson to Garrett and Mary, I sure don't doubt it. She she was old enough to remember them. Um, She uh, unlocked the train depot still standing, uh, where my great-great-grandfather had learned to send and receive messages on the wire, and she gave me two and a half hours of her time. I took all kinds of notes, I uh, recorded a lot of details, but still for all my sleuthing around and barging around and asking questions, um, so much had been lost to fire, to the trash, to this kind of collective forgetting Um, that besides learning that I and the town librarian who helped me were actually distant cousins, I found very few answers to my specific questions. But where the answers were few, There were many, many tantalizing hints and impressions. And for the purposes of a novel in progress, tantalizing hints and impressions are just what the doctor ordered. So uh, I was free to begin dreaming up fictional answers to very real questions. And that's where the main story of the novel began to develop. For instance, what if this secret kept for so long by Benjamin Lorne's tyrannical father became known to Benjamin, and known in such a way that Benjamin felt all but forced to leave home. The central mystery began to take shape. My own encounter with so many unanswered questions in all this travel and reading became in some way Benjamin Lauren's experience as he comes to realize that his father has had some role in a horrendous event, a family death during the war, an event that Benjamin may never know the full story of. What if Benjamin's father became a force that threatened to cut him down? In his memoirs, Garrett says he had wonderful parents, and he writes fondly of his father. But in my first year at work on this novel, the characters in my imagination broke off from the characters in my genealogy. The Lorne family is not the family of my ancestors, though the lineaments of those lives are still there, Iowa and the Telegraph and the shadow of the Civil War. I drastically changed and heightened personalities sometimes with a semi-secret reference to myth and literature. For example, I began to think of Benjamin's bitter one-legged father as a new incarnation of Father Time, this Renaissance figure who's depicted with an hourglass and with a scythe which cuts down time like the grass. But sometimes too, Father Time is depicted with a crutch and that felt like a real discovery to me father time who unveils truth destroys youth and beauty and adds to the burden man bears on his back Benjamin's father whose secret past so profoundly affects his son's life would become the personification of a cruel, inescapable time for these reasons as this character walks through the house or through his shop, Lorne and son his crutch does not go tap tap but clock clock and we have moments in the novel like this one. Benjamin remembers his father leaning away from the crutch, the crutch, lit, the crutch tip leaping from pebbled dirt where the chickens scratched, then splintering heat falling like an ax at his numbness as he flinched and turned. Father, and the father's red eyes as Benjamin wheeled to accuse him. Ah, father, my shoulders broke. But it was the collarbone and fractured, not shattered, which seemed in that senselessness lucky. A crutch had swung and beheaded his ease with the world. In researching the 36th Iowa Infantry that my great-great-great-grandfather fought with, I learned that the regiment was ambushed and captured in southern Arkansas in 1864, and then the survivors were marched south into Texas. There had been a family rumor that he had been in Andersonville, and I was really intrigued when I heard that and really disappointed when I found out it wasn't true. Um, Disappointed in a novelistic way, relieved in a familial way. Um, But what I learned was that the survivors of that ambush, the actual ambush of that regiment, were marched into Texas to the largest Confederate-run prison west of the Mississippi, a place called Camp Ford. Like many Civil War prisons, it was a place of misery, disease, inhuman punishments, and death, of course. So how exactly my great-great-great-grandfather lost his leg during the war still remains unknown to me. But in Perpetuous Kin, it's at Camp Ford, uh, after an ill-fated escape attempt with a friend, that uh, Benjamin's father loses his leg. Having been shot and recaptured in the woods outside the prison, he's brought back to the prison hospital. And this is the first moment in the book when we get sort of a glimpse of the, the Civil War element. Texas, 1865. It stinks of meat, it drones of flies. Too many in camp and too many in hospital. He lies soaking his cot, a paltry tourniquet cinching thigh below the groin and lower down the leg a spill of red and black and bone. Some moments it bloats to sausage and some it shrivels, his vision going furry, his neck lolling loose and the head very heavy like someone sliced the tendons. They'll make him wait, hoping he'll drain, just dribble away through their weak knot at the thigh into puddling union stuff on the raw floor, their blue-bellied pig neatly slit and fit to empty while they watch. A guard stands by. Hell for? Does he look to leap up and run? Count yourself lucky, advises guard, a boy at best. Pink cheeks, no whiskers yet, and his cap set jaunty. Dogs hadn't got you, old Chilcoat's boys would have shot you down. Did too, he groans, near unintelligible. Gave me dog and bullet both. Words slur away in an animal garble. That leg'll go, but you're here, that's lucky. Chilkoth, the devil, how that name was bandied in camp for men of blue he'd hunted and shot in wood and swamp beyond the pickets. Chilkoth sped the dogs before him. Each cur kept starved in Tyler and trained upon no game but man so they knew the scent and taste and hunger to have at it. From his cot, he seized the beasts again, how they hurtled down the thicket, hardly touching earth at all, four to six at first, and then a second wave of equal number. They broke the bracken and swarmed him with their teeth. Snarling man-eaters, rabbit at his wound, while Chilcote through the woods behind, came slow with gun-barrel smoking, expert tracker, and here was proof of that sharpness. Seemed several minutes before the dogs were called back. By then, under their teeth, he thought them his death. At the rifle's report, they scattered. He waited heaped in bloodied leaves to be collected or finished off. And Alfred bleeding in leaves back in the shadows over the ridge, what of him? Was he finished? They scooped up J.M. and dragged him back alone. In that, J.M. had answer. Private Lorne, god damn. In comes the surgeon and soiled butcher's wife. God damn, you've given a hellfire's try, ain't you son? He tries to answer, only gurgles come. And now everything's on edge and twirling, a stained white sheet in a billow and his parts out dangling as he's carried. Come sight again, it's the surgeon's whiskers, dark spikes like boar's hair flaring in whale oil glare, and then the sound of steel, the swish and chime of blades. And light comes spoking off those knives. It sticks the light like glue in his eyes, and surgeon's mouth, whiskered in grimace or grin, with yellow teeth cropping from bottom lip, the lip all crackled. Does he bite it while he saws, while he severs man from himself upon a table? Oh, you'll do, says surgeon's mouth. And it's a smile after all, but lip closes quick. And he turns that toad sticker in hand and goes to work. And there's noise in somebody's throat, the throat going like a spigot let to flow. So, fictional answers to real questions. So, I think I have enough time to read just one more section. Um, Just a little five-minute piece. I never knew Garrett and Mary, my great-great-grandparents who wrote the letters, both of whom died long before I was born, but I did know their daughter, my great-grandmother. She lived for many years in San Francisco, and was a silhouette artist in the city of Paris department store there for something like 30 years. She's kind of a local fixture. She's still semi-famous in San Francisco, I think. Um, One of my very first memories is of sitting in her study, trying not to move while she cut my silhouette. I must have been four years old. So I'll finish with a short section set in 1944. That's as far as the book comes forward in time. Uh, This part of the narrative concerns a character named Avis, who is Benjamin Lorne's daughter. So Benjamin is now in his 80s. Avis is in her 40s and lives with her family in San Francisco, and she works as a silhouette artist at City of Paris. And she's the mother of a 17-year-old named Benny. And when we first meet Avis, we learn that Benny has been missing for a week. This is May 1944, and everybody's saying there will be an Allied uh, landing in Europe soon and all Benny wants is to join up and fight in the war, but Avis has forbidden it. This has become a major conflict between them, and now Benny has run away. Uh, And Avis is terrified that he will find a way to join up. Um, So in this part, she has a memory from Benny's childhood when her family still lived in Iowa. And I'll just end with this section. Benny, nearly a man now, had been a a brittle stem of a boy. Remember him five years old, an afternoon at home in Des Moines, the rain blowing in blankets outside, slapping the eaves. Benny lay sprawled on the carpet with crayons and colored paper. But after a few hours, the rain did not quit, and he tired of trying to draw a human figure to suit his own lofty standard. He came to the dining table. She was penning a letter. You writing to Grandma? Mm Mm-hmm. You'll tell her I love her? All right. He stood by. Need something, Benny? He tendered crayon and paper. Make me a man? A man? Yes, a man, for real. Hmm, well, you're a man for real. Shall I make you? He smiled his smile so like Edgar's, his father's. She set her letter aside. She told him to bring some black paper, She took her small cloth scissors from the table drawer. She still doesn't know why. Turn, she said. She framed him in profile, the rainy window behind. Her hands went to work by will of their own. He grew very serious, quiet. She began at the breastbone slope. She watched the paper turning to meet the scissors at every snip. The scissors said, shh. Collarbone, chin, upper lip, nose and brow, shh. Her small son emerged, shaped in paper. The surrounding black fell away to curl at her feet. There, she held the portrait up beside him. The window framed the likeness, an exact silhouette. She shivered, and shivers now, remembering. She created then for a second time, her only child. Did she feel the new maternity of those moments as they passed? Was that the shiver? She laid the silhouette into his hands. He stood staring at it, seeming to read it. I'm like this? You were, yes, but you're different already, after just a minute. She saw this confused him. She tousled his hair. He took the silhouette to the mirrored breakfront front and did a study. She watched him. He was several minutes in thought. Finally, he came back and handed her the cutting. It's made wrong. He, he tapped his upper lip. This part. She disagreed, but made him another, again starting at the breastbone, and now taking care as she neared the nose. There. He looked at it momentarily, then carried it to the mirror. He was just as long, if not longer, in scrutiny. Coming back, he said, this one's better. I'm glad. He laid it on the table before her, still pondering, Benny? Hmm? What's the matter? Am I different again? I mean, changed from this already. She drew him close and stroked his arms. Don't worry, you'll always be Mama's Benny. We lie, and the lies are love. Avis wonders after 17 years of mothering whether this will remain her single tender memory of that child now so changed. Surely there were others once. Have the battles erased them? Late in the afternoon, Benny forgot the silhouette and steeped himself in other play. Avis laid the second profile atop the first and held them to the light. She switched them. The better one replicated the first, exactly. She signed the letter to her mother, folded it, and slipped the first cutting in, not bothering to explain it. Under coat and hood, she galoshed down the drive to the mailbox. How different that drive with its stand of poplars from her small duplex here amid the close houses on 4th Avenue. Her mother's reply arrived by the following day's late post. Who cut the picture of Benny? So Avis saw her sudden talent. It had come to her from nowhere at all. She wakes in fright some nights now, certain she's lost the gift. So I'll stop there, and we can uh, have something. you. Thank you all for listening. Um, I think we, do we have time for a little conversation? Okay. Uh, I'm looking at the schedule tape to the lectern here. <laughs> it looks like we're okay. Uh, so what questions do you have, if any? Yeah? I am curious about how much of the letters you so beautifully receive from the grant field that you employ in the running per day. I'd say it's like 15% I use in the book. It's just little phrases here and there. Like for instance, in one of the letters I read, he says, uh, to illustrate what an awful heathendom I am in, I will give you the events of one night. That's exactly, that's verbatim from one of Garrett's letters. Um, But there was just a tonality, there was like a music to the way Garrett wrote that just got into my head after reading the hundred odd letters and rereading them and thinking about him um, that I just tried to emulate. So uh, yeah, it's about 85 percent imagined, 15 percent Garrett and Mary. Hey, Nate. (laughs) Yeah, Theresa. It does. I think the, uh, the, the books I respond to most in terms of just feeling jazzed up to write are the books, um, well, for instance, right now I'm reading Virginia Woolf's The Waves for the first time, and I'm wondering how I got this far in life without reading it, because it's, it's going to be a lifelong wellspring of inspiration, just the, the sheer, just unstoppered flow of language and the waves flow. But, uh, yeah, so I, I respond hugely to those kinds of works. Um, there were specific works that really uh, inspired the writing of this book. I could just name a few, one major one. which It's been a major book for me in everything I've written, but this one particularly was Wallace Stegner's Angle of Repose, um, just a masterwork by a great Western writer. Uh, and then uh, there's a wonderful writer named Jane Ann Phillips, and she has a book called Machine Dreams that came out in 1985, and it's a multi-generational novel um, told non-linearly. There are some letters in it, so I was definitely looking to that book too, but, but her language also is extremely precise and extremely um, attuned, you know, in terms of a kind of having an ear for the music. Yes, black tickets is amazing too. All her work is that way. Yeah, right up to uh, one of her recent ones, Lark and Termite is also incredible. Yeah, thank you for the question. That's a good question. Anybody else have a burning question? Yeah, Jack. I'm curious about the yeah. Uh, so, so, while you're reading uh, some of the aspects of with words and the the meaninglessness of words is there, are there actual plot like little hidden, literal plot things in there as well? Yeah there are there's a lot of some of them sort of appeared, I don't know if if it's because I've been such an avid Hamlet fan since I first was exposed to the play like 25 years ago or something but some of them sort of appeared before I even had this idea that I was going to build in this Hamlet conceit And then I kind of recognized them and thought, well, Shakespeare did that. That's Hamlet. And then I went back to Hamlet and looked more deliberately at the structure of the play. So there are like little Easter eggs kind of planted throughout. I've only read half of the the story so far, so I didn't, I haven't thought they have this. Um, yes, most of the main sort of unmistakable elements you'll find later. (laughs) But there are a few little bits of language that are sprinkled in that are borrowed straight from the play. Like there's a blind man who comes to Perpetua, and he's a speechmaker, and he just patters, and a, a lot of his languages, not a lot, but some significant portions of it are Shakespearean from Hamlet. There's a little King Lear in there too, for good measure. But uh, yeah, just the figure of Hamlet um, really seemed to fall into sync with the figure of Benjamin at many points. And I, I say that mainly if you think of Hamlet in terms of a man on a stage thinking. Like, the action kind of stops, and he thinks. and <laughs> thinks aloud. Um, I think that happens in the letters to a certain degree and at other points. Um, and then there's... I'll just spill the beans. There's this one little locale in the book called El Senor, California, which is like a little play on El Senor. Little things like that. It was going to be Lone Rise, which is... a an anagram of Elsinore, but I thought Elsinore was kind of more fun. <laughs> so, <laughs> those things, you, they kind of keep you going as a writer. Like you just sprinkle them through, and they sort of, even if they don't delight anyone else, they can just delight you. So, <laughs> Yeah, Jackie. So I'm, I'd love that you start, well, you know, it's not the absolute beginning, but I'd love that you have an archive of
0: family letters. You can you talk a little bit about the process where they stopped being relatives and when they yeah. became characters? You know, so we have to, yeah.
1: I think the first major point of departure was when I realized what a tyrant um, Benjamin's father was going to be, which was so different from my actual great-great-grandfather's father, who was, a, by all accounts, a wonderful dad, and a, a noble guy, and did his service in the war, and sacrificed a limb... But I think that was the main point of departure, was the father. Um, And then I think it dovetails a bit with Jack's question. Like, once I saw the Hamlet element, that as sort of becoming sort of an informing spine for the plot and whatnot, that took me in a whole other direction, too, and really I branched off at that point from a lot of the history. I actually came across some of my earliest drafts recently, when I started writing the book in 2007, I was kind of shocked by how like faithful they were to the actual people the characters all had their real names and it was the real the name of the real town and I used real incidents and stuff I don't know I definitely moved away from that
0: Yeah. yeah David uh, the silhouette scene was really wonderful and I'm curious
1: two things does the book visit the- it does, yeah. Yeah. And the other thing I was curious about was do you still have the silhouette that was made of you? I do. Yeah. I, I actually thought about bringing it tonight and forgot at the last moment. Um, yeah, I have that one when I was four and then she did several others throughout my childhood and of my siblings and family members. Those are real treasures. She had an uncanny knack for capturing a likeness. And the little anecdote in the piece I read about the boy saying this part isn't right, she, my great grandmother in real life, always said that was the key to capturing the likeness in a silhouette so was this part right here. If she got that, she got the likeness, so I thought it was really interesting and it was this gift that came to her out of nowhere one day under the same circumstances. so the city of Paris though is an interesting is an interesting part of old San Francisco it's Neiman Marcus now on the square, so the inner the inner um, the core of the store is very different, but at the top there's still a glass dome that has the ship that was named the City of Paris. That the Verdier brothers opened the store. They originally opened the store on board the ship in San Francisco Bay in like the 1840s or something. Um, and so there's still this stained glass rendering of their ship at the, in the rotunda there of Neiman Marcus, which is kind of a cool thing to see if you're in San Francisco. Like a metaphor for your book. It is actually. That's that's so great that you said that, because <laughs> that's a, there's actually a little moment early on in the first scene in City of Paris that kind of plays on that. Thank you. <laughs>
0: yeah, perfect. Um, having listened to a few of your readings and just finished one of your stories, it strikes me um, how different your voices are. And, mm. right, Time. You have the letters, but what other tools did you use to really get those voices in different
1: periods of time? I think it's just a, a question of um, very considered, very targeted thefts from other writers. Mm-hmm. Right? Just, you take little things and you put them in your, your toolkit, you know. That's my experience, anyway, in terms of voice, especially. is Finding writers again, this goes to that question of language. Finding writers whose just command of voice really lights something up inside you, and, and then analyzing it, seeing what they do, and taking little, literally stealing things sometimes. You know, not like, not like copyright infringement kind of stealing, but stealing. You know, the tool that they use. Um, does that kind of answer your question? I mean, yeah. No. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of what else I can say about that. Uh, yeah, I, it, for me, it just all goes back to, like, source material, too, in terms of the research. The research always really informs the voice of my books. Um, like with my first book, which is about coal miners, you, you dive into the, re- the research about that way of life, and this whole lexicon becomes available to you. And those are just like the technical words, but those words always like suggest a whole, a whole world just in their weirdness, in their, in their archaic qualities, you know. So that is a way too that you kind of find your way into, it. I do anyway, or try to. Well, thank you all for being here. I really, it was wonderful to see you here. I thank you for coming out on a rainy night and listening. It means a lot to me, so. Uh, I'd be happy to sign any books or just chat some more. Thank you.